Hey guys, I'm super excited about today's video. Today we're going to be going over Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. If you're interested in buying a copy of this book, I put the link to buy it on Amazon in the description of this video. And if you don't know who Jordan B. Peterson is, I highly recommend you check out his super popular YouTube channel. You can also find the link to that in the description of this video. So without further ado, I bring to you rule number four. Rule four says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. He starts off by talking about the differences between living in a small town and a big town. An unproportional amount of successful people at the top have come from small towns. And I think it's because in a small town, there isn't as many people to compare yourself to. And so if you're moderately good at something, you start to gain momentum by the belief in yourself. In New York City, for example, there are 20 million people. So even if you are one in a million, which would put you as a pretty rare, talented person, there's still 20 of you running around in that city alone. Now, when you add the digital component to everything with the internet and the social media, you're talking about a global connectivity. And so now we have access to the rest of the world, and now you're talking about 7 billion people. So no matter how good you are at anything in particular, there's always going to be somebody better than you. And in today's day and age, it is blaringly obvious that this is the case. That inner critic inside of our head that tells us that we're not good enough or draws comparison to other people to, as proof that we are inefficient at whatever it is that we're trying to do can be quite noisy. And it is a fact that people are not equal in ability. There's a very small percentage of people that are at the top of their field, and then a vast majority of people are stuck at the bottom. It also should be noted that it is normal to start low, we start at the bottom, and it's through work and perseverance that we start to rise through the ranks. And I think some people lose sight of this. We either look at the fact that we're not on the top already as proof that we are incapable of getting there, we're not qualified to be there, or on the reverse side of the coin, we resort to what he calls positive illusions. And we must beware of these positive illusions. And these illusions are what we tell ourselves when we say, I'm already okay. I don't need to improve. And that is just ridiculous. That's not to say that we have no self-worth if we don't have any type of achievement. But what he really means is when you adopt that kind of mind state, all growth stops. And that would be to your disservice. As we try to grow and try to navigate our way through life, it is very easy to slip into the mind state that life is unfair and that the cards are just rigged against you. If you feel this way, chances are the game very well may be rigged, but what he's saying here is it may be rigged by you and your own thinking. 
in the form of all the self-doubt that you entertain in your own head. So, stop listening to it. In life, things have value. Things are better or worse. This is a real thing. And although it may have a subjective element to it because what people value may differ from person to person, the seeking out of things that are better is what gives life its meaning to begin with. Our motivation lies within our values. We are motivated to seek out the things in which we deem valuable. Now the problem with this is we try to create two categories of failure and success. Now the problem with this is life is too complex to just say you're a failure or you're a success. Every situation has so many factors And there's so many facets of life that you could be successful at and also fail at other ones simultaneous. So there's grades of failure and grades of success. And so it's not so black and white. You may look at your professional life and think that you are a failure. And you might look at somebody, a coworker or a friend or an acquaintance and see that they are very successful in their professional life. And you may think to yourself that you're a failure and they're successful. However, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. The person who's very successful in their professional life might have a terrible marriage and so they might be failing in other areas of your life and so when you look at your life and see that your relationships are successful right there you see that you've been successful in one area where this other person hasn't now keep in mind we're playing simultaneous games at the same time and so if you find yourself playing this game this this uh, seeking of success if you will and you find yourself failing then maybe you're just playing the wrong game and it's time to focus on something else. And that's the beauty of life is we get to pick our games that we're playing. We get to pick our ventures and what we are chasing in our life. And if you find that you just can't seem to find the right game to to play, then maybe it's time you create your own one. You know, if you If you are trying to take a well-beaten path and you're not having any success, then maybe it's time that you find your own way, make your own way, and then you can be successful in that endeavor. Another delusion that we have to overcome is that failure means that we've lost completely. Sometimes when we are chasing success and we fail, a lot of growth comes out of that, and that growth is a success in itself. Um, So if we were to succeed all the time, then we would never really be growing. And if we're not growing, that in itself is a failure. Life is so complex and unique to the individual that any individual's success does not necessarily correlate to everybody else. So if you find yourself comparing to other people and thinking that you are less than, what he proposes here is, perhaps you are overvaluing what you don't have and undervaluing what you do have. So in other words, it's a lack of gratitude. If we can find this gratitude in our own life, we can use it as protection against victimhood and resentment. And like we mentioned before, you may be more successful in certain areas of life than other super successful people might be. So, 
your comparison is most likely faulty to begin with. But he goes even further than this and he talks about comparison in general is a faulty frame of thought. Because first off, when we compare, we're taking one arbitrary trait out of context and operating under the delusional assumption that this particularly arbitrary trait is of paramount significance. So in other words, it is the only thing that matters, which is definitely not the case. Even if somebody is super successful in one area of their life, if they're not well-rounded in general, then they may be more of a failure than a success. When we hyper-focus on a person's one area of success and discount everything else that's involved in the complexity of life, we quickly begin to operate under the delusion that we're not good enough compared to them, and thus we lose all of our motivation. Now, this is not to say that comparison doesn't have its uses. When we're young, for example, comparison is necessary because we start off as a blank slate and we must compare ourselves to other people so that we can figure out how to act within society. But as we get older, we become more individual And as this individualization happens, we must start to learn who we are and act accordingly. One of the most important things you could learn about yourself is what interests you and in what areas do you show some talent. You cannot force yourself to grind for your whole entire life. It is not sustainable. So you need to find an area that you're passionate about that interests you. This way, you are more motivated to seek success in that area. So how do you get to know yourself? He suggests the first step in this process is trying to forget everything you think you already know about yourself. And then, from this new perspective... We can take a look at what we like and what we don't like without trying to suppress them to please anybody else. Once we have figured out what we want and what we don't want, we must learn to articulate these things and communicate them with the people in our life. When we start to do this successfully, we can drastically change our life. And the point here is to create a life that we don't need a break from. It's when we fail to articulate the things that we want out of life and fail to create a life that we don't need a break from that we start to run into some trouble. He refers to this trouble as the evil triad, which is arrogance, deceit, and resentment. If we don't do something when we don't about the things that we don't like in our life, one of two things needs to happen. We either need to take a look at it and see that we're being petty and immature and we need to grow up and change our expectations, or if we're dealing with a tyrant and there's really something that shouldn't be happening to us, we need to speak up. We have a moral obligation to do so. Nobody's a mind reader. You can't expect people to know how to treat you because your problems are so unique that they only apply to you directly. And so it's another reason why we can't compare ourselves to other people. Everybody has their own issues that they're dealing with and have to overcome. And so the starting point in which we seek success is not a fixed place. 
So then he goes on to talk about how we as humans view the world. And he does this not only in a metaphorical sense, but also in a physiological sense. We are goal-driven creatures. We have to have an aim. We have to have something that we are working towards. The definition of sin comes from an old word that was an archery term, which means to miss the mark. And so this is at the core of our existence. When we strive, when we make a mark and we strive to hit it, sometimes we fall short. Foresight is an attribute that is unique to the human race. We have the ability to imagine a future that is different than the present that we are experiencing today. So this foresight is a good thing and a bad thing. It's good because it's good to have a vision for the future and something that you can strive towards. However, oftentimes it can turn itself on us and be bad when we fall short of the mark and thus are left with disappointment. So we can protect ourselves from this disappointment by taking stock of the way our life is and start to fix what isn't working in our lives. And you don't need to beat yourself up in order to do that. He sums this point up by saying, Perhaps happiness is always to be found in the journey uphill not in the fleeting sense of satisfaction awaiting at the next peak. So when you choose to fix something that isn't working in your life, you need to talk to yourself as if you are trying to convince somebody else to fix this. So you need to be gentle. You can't be a tyrant. And you must reward yourself when you behave accordingly and start to fix these issues that are cropping up in your life. Learn how to negotiate with yourself and make compromises. And you don't start too big. You can start small. You must ask yourself, what small changes can I make towards achieving my goal? And what small reward could I give myself when I achieve this small start towards my goal? And don't be discouraged if you have to start really small. Because you must remember, if you continue to do this over time, The small increases add up exponentially over time because as you improve the state of your life, the baseline changes. So if every tomorrow is better than today, within three years, your life will look drastically different for the better. As you aim higher and higher, your life will start to look much different because what we aim at determines what you see. The higher the aim, the better your life seems. Now, once again, he doesn't just mean this metaphorically. He actually means it physiologically as well, because vision is expensive. It takes the brain quite a bit of effort to process the visual stimulus within itself. And so it is very precious and we can't afford the high resolution imagery with insignificant things. So whatever it is that's important to us, whatever it is that we're aiming at, that's what we're focused on and everything else just fades to the background. Here he cites Dr. Daniel Simmons's experiment where he challenges the test group to keep count of how many times two teams wearing black and white pass a ball back and forth. 
Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? So, did you see the gorilla? Now, if you've seen this video before, you probably noticed it immediately. But believe it or not, his studies showed that only 50% of people actually see the gorilla, which just goes to show you that we can miss stuff that seems relatively obvious when we are hyper-focused on something else. He draws a parallel here between the results of this study and the ancient Vedic texts of the Hindu religion, which states that we are blinded by our desires. And so perhaps our unhappiness is rooted in the fact that our aim is wrong. We're aiming at the wrong thing and that is the cause of why we are so unhappy. Because of the way we are viewing our life in relationship to our aim. And so having laid down a solid foundation, he proposes maybe life isn't what has the problem. Maybe you are who has the problem. But that's good news because if we are the ones who have the problem, then there's steps that we can take to solve that problem. The first of which being is our misplaced ambition. Oftentimes our ambitions drive us towards a very narrow goal it's this narrowness of the goal that leads to our unhappiness because if we can't achieve one specific outcome, then we are doomed to think that we are a failure. The example he gives here is wanting your boss's job. If you want to have the job that your boss has and that is your primary goal in life, then you're probably doomed to be pretty unhappy unless you get that specific job. Instead, why not set the bar a little bit higher and change the goal to how can we make our life better? If we start to do that, we may end up with a job that's even better than the job that our boss has. Or perhaps our goal isn't related to our careers at all. Maybe it's just improving other areas of our life. Regardless, if we start to strive towards a more achievable goal and we start to make progress towards that goal, then suddenly we find ourselves much happier with the state of our being. Now this sounds great in theory, but do not be mistaken here. There is a cost, a price of admission, and it's not always easy because improving your life means taking on more responsibility and responsibility takes effort. More effort than remaining stuck and miserable. But when we do this and we take a new aim, 
a new view of the world comes into fruition. And as we said before, if we sustain this new view and continue to improve on it on a day-to-day basis, then the view becomes higher and higher as time goes on, and life seems better and better as we change this viewpoint. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we strive towards these new values and these new goals in which we are aiming at? And so we must have a discussion here on ethics and religion. Ethics is what is right and wrong. And religion is even further what is good and evil. We use these systems of belief as a way to discipline ourselves as we set out in life to achieve our goals. And further than that, These belief systems actually shape the way in which we view the world. Now, this idea of right versus wrong and good versus evil exists within every single one of us internally. Even if we happen to be atheists, we still can't really escape this inner battle of good versus evil. And he makes this point by referencing the great Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky in his famous novel, Crime and Punishment. In the novel, the main character, Raskolnikov, is an atheist that decides to act out on his belief that there is no God and that everything is meaningless. And in this process, he commits a horrendous murder, thinking that it is benevolent and that nothing will come of it. He gets away with the murder, but is slowly driven insane by his guilt that he holds from acting that way. Our perception of the present day is shaped by the collective experiences of the past, which are so complex, we could never hope to fully understand that which shapes the way in which we view the world. He notes that this explanation of how our past shapes our perceptions and the patterns that lie within the human experience is exactly with what all the ancient religious texts attempt to describe. He makes particular note of the Tao Te Ching, the ancient Vedic texts, and the Bible, as they all make an attempt to explain the unexplainable that is the human experience. He really breaks this down by explaining the differences between the God of the Old Testament in the Bible and the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was a force to be reckoned with. If you went against his wishes, you were going to have hell to pay, and he punished you severely for disobeying. Now, this is a very realist type of view of the way the world works. It's very clear when you look around you can see suffering and pain everywhere in every facet of light. However, the New Testament God is all loving and compassionate. He's filled with mercy and forgiveness. Now, this idea of the New Testament God sounds very good. However, it is becoming increasingly hard to imagine a God like that, especially in post-World War II after the evil we saw within the Nazi concentration camps. And it's no wonder that philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche said things like, God is dead, 
and we have killed him. So how does this all fit into the point that we're trying to make here? He brings us back to the example he used earlier of wanting your boss's job. If your aim is flawed and narrow, then we tend to view the world as if the Old Testament God is in charge, where we are constantly being punished for our shortcomings. If we use our free will as it was designed and choose the proper thing to aim at, then a new life starts to come into view and we start to see the world in all its glory and the New Testament God starts to make much more sense to us. So in other words, we must set our aim high and cultivate the faith that will help us overcome any obstacles that might get in the way of achieving that goal. Only then can we start to overcome our nihilism, the belief that life is meaningless, and our pessimism, seeing the negative aspect in everything that we experience in life. So hoping that he has convinced you of the necessity of aiming high, he has to make another note on this. And that is, the betterment of ourselves would be totally canceled out if in the process we made life worse for somebody else. Thus, it's not all about where we are going, but it is also how are we choosing to get there. So as we make our start, we can settle for just trying to better ourselves without causing harm to anybody else. But as we improve and as we grow, we can start to include other people in this betterment process. So we can start to make the people who are closest to us lives a little bit better as well. And as we grow and grow and grow, we can expand that circle outward until eventually we are making everybody that we come into acquaintances lives better. And hopefully, eventually, we can start to make the world a better place. So, practically speaking, how are we to do this? Well, he says the first thing we can do is we can start to pay close attention to what's going on in our life. Only then can we start to find the habits that we must let go of that are no longer serving us. He suggests that we relinquish control by giving up all our old strategies that we used to use to try to bring about our goals such as manipulation, conniving, maneuvering, scheming, enforcing or demanding that our will be obeyed, or avoiding all types of responsibilities or negative consequences. When we pay attention, don't just pay attention to the physical or material world. Pay attention to what's going on psychologically as well. Ask yourself, what is bothering you? Could you fix it? And if you could fix it, would you even be willing to fix it? If the answer is no, you're not willing to fix something that's bothering you, then that's okay. Maybe you just need to start off a little bit smaller. You could always revisit it later once you get some momentum going. A perfect example of this could be procrastination. Perhaps you haven't done laundry in weeks, and you have a giant mountain of dirty clothes cluttering up your room. When you take a look at that giant pile of clothes, you might feel overwhelmed, and if you set out to do the entire mountain of clothes all at once, you might find yourself fighting it and not wanting to do it. 
However, if you were to break it down and ask yourself, well, could I do maybe just one or two loads today? Then maybe that's a much easier pill to swallow. Don't overestimate yourself and bite off more than you can chew. And don't forget to reward yourself for following through with these small changes that we make on a daily basis. What is it that you've been wanting to do? Or what treat have you been craving? He suggests if you do the load of laundry, reward yourself by getting a cup of coffee or maybe going to see the movie that you've been wanting to see for a while. The whole point in rewarding yourself for this type of behavior is so that we can use positive reinforcement to make this a daily habit. When we practice this enough, we can start to plan our day around these types of behaviors. So when we pay attention and seek to make our life better, it is much more effective of an approach than trying to whip yourself into shape and act the tyrant that demands that we make all these changes right now. Life is much more beautiful when we're motivated by desire to be better than we were yesterday rather than just trying to avoid punishment for our sins and shortcomings. This is, he says, the true message of the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ that so many organized religions get wrong today. Most people try to avoid the punishment of hell, and that's why they act. However, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought of the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So according to this, we must stop striving to control these situations and try to get out ahead. And instead, we need to take that effort and seek the truth of the matter. And the truth is, everything will be okay if we can properly orientate our aim in life. And so we begin to learn how to negotiate with ourselves and not be the tyrant demanding that we act a certain way. We start to let go of envy because we realize that other people don't have it better than us in every aspect of their life. And so on the bigger scale, they don't really have it better than us. We start to become less frustrated by life when we stop aiming too high and start to break down our aim into small incremental goals that are ever increasing. Others' actions start to affect us less because we are more than preoccupied by working towards the aim in which we have set for ourselves. So we live for today and we rejoice in the progress that we make. And then we become hopeful for the future. So in conclusion, he sums this up by saying, Aim for paradise and concentrate on today. Orient yourself properly towards heaven, which is beauty, truth, and good, and work diligently here on earth to achieve that. 
What you are becoming is much more important than what you currently are. I hope you guys enjoyed this video. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the channel so that you can catch the weekly videos that come out on Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and other books just like it. Join me next week for rule number five. Don't let your children do anything that would make you dislike them. Until next time, I'll see you guys later. The eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs>